Since 1774, Newark Academy has contributed to the world, engaged individuals instilled with a passion for learning, a standard of excellence, and a generosity of spirit. Scattered throughout the world today, NA alumni continue to exhibit these traits and more and have such incredible stories to share. You'll hear these stories on this podcast, NA Voices. Here's your host, Head of School, Don Austin. Let's you and me go away to the ICE Hotel. The Caribbean. So, Stacy Kent uh, it's, is a world renowned jazz singer who has received a host of honors and awards, including a Grammy nomination, album sales in excess of 2 million, gold, double gold, and platinum selling albums that have reached a series of number one chart positions during the span of her career. It's my great pleasure to welcome Stacy, who is Newark Academy class of 1983, to this episode of NA Voices. Um, so Stacy, thank you so much for being here. And I guess I'd like to, to start to a little bit with your uh, with your early years, as I mentioned before, um, can you talk to me a little bit about your Newark Academy experience? Sure. This is a funny one for me because I don't have um, a phenomenal memory for my earliest days. And it's funny because I have a I have a way of remembering things that I think is really acute and good. And then this other way that just seems very vague. And my feeling, my guess is that one of the reasons I feel disconnected is because the day after I graduated from college, literally the day later, I was on a plane to Europe and I never came home. And so the disconnect started to just it was already in place from early days. And mm -hmm. so there was nobody to kind of remind me and anchor me to those things. I had such a wanderlust to get out into the world that um, I didn't really look back. And so it's only now that I'm, I live back in America now and I have vague connections, but that's an opening to say that my recollections aren't phenomenal. When I do run into people from my past, they have these incredible, memories, these very strong, specific memories about things that happened that I just don't remember, which is weird. I've spent my life kind of memorizing lyrics and poetry yeah. and things like that. So I don't know what happened along the way, um, but I can tell you things about those early days that are more general, which is to say that um, I spent, I was in either the earliest class or one of the earliest classes of the sixth grade that let girls in. So I was in, or maybe even just that it was a sixth grade, because there was a little bit of a shift at Newark Academy. And so I was one of very few of that sixth grade class and was there all the way from six to 12. Most people at that point were coming in from seven to 12. So I was there for a really long chunk of my youth. Um, and, you know, I have these memories of being there in those hallways um, and being in the classes, there are certain teachers who are still with me in my heart and in my memory who probably put me on my path, even though it wasn't music. Uh, Joe Borlo was my teacher in, in French and humanities and he made a huge impression on me and really fueled me uh, early on. Um, he was the one who told me to go to Sarah Lawrence 
And so I went to Sarah Lawrence. Uh, Betty Newman was another one whose office was right across from Joe Borlo's. And so I remember being in that little cubby area a lot. Okay. And then I was in the school shows, you know, but I was in the school shows like all the kids. We were all in the school shows and it was just this thing that we all participated in. But those were years before I knew that I would become a professional singer. So they were just, they were joyful days. Yeah. Um, I hung around a lot after school to be in rehearsals and also to be on the tennis team. So was, I was at school a lot until 6 p.m. Right. That's another very vivid memory, not just what happened after at, you know, up until three, but also that period of three to six. I enjoyed being at the school when nobody was there. The halls were empty and it was just those of us who participated in extracurricular things. So those are kind of my memories. I was a bit of an outcast. I, I liked saying this to the kids who are listening now. I don't normally talk about this so much, I guess, but I think it's good for kids who are little, who feel like they don't really belong you eventually go out and you find your tribe. I was definitely a little bit of an oddball. Um, and that was okay because you find your path. Absolutely. Um, you, you did, I mean, you mentioned Joe Borlow and, and his teaching of French and humanities and, and you did go on to, to Sarah Lawrence where you studied, I think, comp lit, is that right? Yeah, so was, that, was there a kind of a through line between <clears throat> an interest uh, or a spark of love for literature that happened in those early years and was continued and and when, yeah, so that's my first question, I guess, or the, the rest of your sort of formal education, if you will. Absolutely. All the things that I really paid attention to, because I'm one of those kids who I didn't pay that much attention to the things that didn't interest me. Right. And I paid a lot of attention to the things that did interest me until I found my way. So I was, um, you know, partly a bad student and partly a good student. It depended. Uh, you know, they were they were kind of crazy years up in the in the head and you just flitted around. And you know, I, I wasn't terribly focused in yeah. all across the board. Let's put it that way. But um, the humanities interested me uh, and language interested me. I also studied uh, Latin for a few years at Newark Academy. And also they, I took a lot of literature classes and I remember my mother going into the school and talking to one of my teachers about giving me a little extra class so that I could be on my own path. I don't really know how that worked because I don't really remember, but she spoke to one of my English teachers about that. But definitely all of those things, I would say, put me on the path that I am today. I had this real strong urge to be part of the world. I loved the literature from the point of view and the humanities from the point of view of, um, yeah, that very thing that there was this big world out there that wasn't right where we were. And I was longing to get into it. And one of my ways in was to study language. Um, so, my Latin classes were very important to me. My French classes were very important to me. And I think that they gave me this desire to not necessarily just to study the language, but just to communicate with people. You mm -hmm. know, I spoke a lot to my grandfather who was an immigrant, who um, he was a Russian who came to America via France. He was in France for a long time. And so he gave me my, uh, 
my first taste of French film and French poetry and French literature. He was teaching me how to recite Baudelaire before I could understand possibly what Baudelaire actually meant. Mm -hmm. I was just good at repeating the words after him. And so he gave me this little look into the world out there. So between that, what was going on at home and what was going on at Newark Academy, because you can't find your little corners like that Betty Newman, Joe Borlow corner I'm right, talking about. Right. Um, that can, you know, even if you're not necessarily on your path yet, can put you, you know, veering towards that road. Absolutely. Well, that's that's fascinating. And of course, I, I am having myself lived in France for a long time and been a French teacher. I've even, you know, before we knew we were going to do this interview, I've been always impressed by the fact that you sing often in French and that your French is excellent. Um, so I've wondered, you know, how did how did she um, how did Stacy get to such a high level of proficiency? And um, and I, I want to come back to that, too, because I have some specific questions about sort of the influence, the French influences on your work. Um, but you mentioned, uh, you know, that I, I guess I'm curious about at what point, you know, you, you got on a plane right after Sarah Lawrence and you were ready to go to the go to see the world. Um, at what point would you say that what you've described as your path became, sort of began to take shape or you could see that you were sort of going down in this direction? Well, this is a really interesting question. And I, I love reflecting on this because it gives me an understanding to my own world and, um, you know, way here. Um, it was knocking at my door long before I realized and recognized that it was knocking at my door. Um, I think that there are, a few there are a few strands that bring us to this place. First of all, I said I was this kind of outcast. And yet at the same time, I loved communicating with people. I really longed to talk to people. And I was, I think that that is part of one of my strengths in what I do today because I just enjoy, you know, language and communication and sharing and this exchange. Um, and so I wanted to do that with people who were strangers to me. You know, there, there's one detail I'll, I'll tell you about Newark Academy. Uh, I came from this world which was potentially quite closed if you wanted it to be, but also there were doors open. That's why somebody like Joe Borlo pushing me out into the world the way he did. Um, was so important to me. Even when I was at Newark Academy, when I got old enough during the lunch hours in my last two years in the 11th and 12th grade, I got a job at Newark Academy in the kitchen. And I was taking the dishes from the kids who were coming into the lunchroom. Um, and I was talking to the people who were working in the, the kitchen there. And that, that was very important to me. I didn't want... I don't know why this was, okay? You can't really necessarily explain why you are the way you are, right? right? But I had an instinct and I think I was good at following my instinct. My instinct was to go and talk to other people who came from other places, um, other paths, other points of view, and just sit and listen to them and ask questions. And I think that that too fed into who I became that had nothing to do with the music and yet it did have everything to do with the music. So when you asked me that question, at what point, when I said I got on that plane, uh, my first stop was Germany. Cause when I went to college, 
after French and Latin, I was also studying other languages and German was one of my languages and it turned out to be the weakest of my languages and I needed to improve it because at that point, I thought I would go out and be a language teacher, a translator, somebody in language and literature. I didn't quite know. I was just, you know, a kid floating around like all kids are or most kids are, but I knew that this was my arena and I needed to improve my German. So I went to Germany first. And this is where I have to admit that, you know, I'm pretty grounded. I'm not terribly spiritual. I'm of the ground rather than the, I keep indicating up there. And right. yet, and yet I have this kind of fatalist point of view because there was some force from without or within that kept pushing me into this path. And here's what happened. So I was in Germany, I was studying, I was serious about my studies and yet I kept running into musicians and I kind of wondered who are all these musicians who kept falling into my path and somebody would say hey why don't you come down to this place called Gisela's in, in Munich I sang for some guy one night and he said you have such a good voice come with me he was a guitarist come with me and come sing a couple of songs so I ended up going to this place and singing and people were really into it. And I had no idea what was going on. I was just this kid who sang at Nork Academy and, and Sarah Lawrence a little bit, you know? So all of these forces kept putting me on this musical path. And I wasn't even really asking the question yet because I was tr still trying to get back to my own, what I thought was my path. So there I am reading Diderot and Jacques Le Fataliste. Meanwhile, these musicians are just being flung at me. And then, Here's, here's the turning point. I had already studied after Nurk Academy, I spent all of my summers at Middlebury studying language on their language program. So I was at Sarah Lawrence, I was at Middlebury in the summer times. Um, I then went to Germany, I was studying and I think I just got a little bit of brain fatigue. You know, mm -hmm. I had done a lot of study with a lot without very much time off. And a friend of mine from Sarah Lawrence was on a junior year abroad program in Oxford. So I hopped on a plane and went from Munich to Oxford. And there was an advertisement for a one year postgraduate course at the Guildhall School of Music in London. And this was the turning point, but I didn't even realize it yet. And so I made the most impetuous decision. I thought, I'm gonna go audition. I'll never get in. This was a course that was postgrad. It was for people who had studied four years of undergrad music. I had and I was a literature student, but I'm gonna go audition anyway. And only 26 kids are on the course and they took me. And I had a good pair of ears and I was good with intervals. I had no idea what I was talking about. I had no you know, understanding of the, the language. I didn't have the tools, but I had the ears. So they took me, they took a couple of kids who weren't on a music course. But I thought, oh, it's one year and I'll go back to my studies after this. I was gonna to work towards my master's. That's where I met Jim. Jim is very important to this story because he is still my husband today, 29 years. And Jim and I had similar paths because he was what's called a PPE student at Oxford. I didn't meet him in Oxford even yet when I was there on that little trip I told you about. He was studying philosophy, politics and economics. And he played at the Oxford College Big Band and music was just his aside and music was just my aside. And he decided to audition on that course too. 
So here I am now on this weird course in this weird world in England. I had no idea how I got there. It was all so fast. You're allowed to hold on to your master's credits. You know this, I'm sure, for 10 years after you've started. So I was kind of on my way and I thought, well, I'll just take a time out. I love music. I'll just do this thing and then I'll go back. But I met Jim and we met and fell madly in love, you know, right there. It was so obvious. It was like, we just looked at each other and went, oh, it's you. It was one of those. You who are, that's what I mean about the fatalism. Here's another lovely little detail, just a detail I love. So as you know, London, anybody listening will know, London is vast. It started out as this little city and it just kept pushing out and out and out and it's just this huge vast city. We were both on the Guildhall School of Music course. And in all of London, we ended up renting rooms and flats on the same bus route, just about a block away from each other. How is that even possible? So again, fate stepped in. So I'm at a bus stop on this course that I don't really belong on. Jim's at the bus stop. And if he's not at the bus stop yet to get into school, I will purposely miss the bus so that I could be on the bus with him thinking he'll come and catch the next bus. So now we're taking this bus route into the Guildhall School of, London, of Music and back out in Hackney where we both were renting. And that allowed us to have more time together and just continue to fall in love. So the year ended, the, the, the course, and I was supposed to go home or go somewhere. And there was no way I was going anywhere because I had found this person with whom I was gonna share a life. So that's a very long-winded way of saying, in answer to your question, these things just kept happening and when I got to the end of that course, there was no way I was gonna go anywhere. I was crazy about this guy. And meanwhile, we were getting these job offers because school students at Guildhall always get called. People will call up the school and say, do you have a band for us to come play at the British Telecom Tower? Do you have a band to come play at the Natural History Museum? So we were also doing sort of evening gigs, okay. learning okay. our trade, falling in love. The year came to an end and I stayed in England and that is when I kind of figured out, oh, I guess this is what I'm gonna be doing. That's an amazing story. And, and both of you, again, having studied other things, ended up sort of finding one another and both pursuing music as kind of your vocation, right? I mean, you probably didn't think of it that way at the time, you were just doing it, but you know, as you look back on it, I think you can say that that was, that, that's, that was the turning point, I guess. Exactly. Because as you say, it was the vocation was there. It was my calling, right. but I had no idea it was calling to me until it was right there. And then things happened for me pretty fast. Not too fast, I will have to say. And I like that because I think it's really important in this industry that I'm in, because it is also an industry. Music was my calling, but it was also this industry. Things can happen very quickly to you very young, which make you continually question yourself along the way. Do I deserve to be here? Should I be here? Have I had enough time? I think Jim and I, in all that time of learning our trade, cutting our teeth, doing those kind of gigs, working on it, we didn't realize that we were working on it because when you're a little kid, it's something who's, we weren't so little at this point, but you know, even when you're little, little up until that point, your formative years, when you're good at something and you just do it for the joy of it, you're all the while 
learning and taking in. You're just this little sponge along the way. And when I was on the bus route with Jim, and this was so, this was one of the reasons I was so crazy about Jim. Jim knew every word to every song I could think of on the Great American Songbook. And so we would sit on those double back, it was pretty romantic. We'd sit on those double decker buses and we'd be up top and be watching London go by as we got into Hackney, just singing, sharing songs, singing, you know, Frank Sinatra repertoire, whatever. We were just learning and teaching each other and sharing and going home to his apartment and listening to Paul Gonzalez records and Duke Ellington and all this kind of thing and Brazilian music as well that we had both such a strong interest in. Um, and then the Portuguese studies came after that, but we, um, we were getting ready for this path, but no, we had no idea we were because, you know, when you're 20 or 22 or however old we were there, yeah, probably about 22, we were, um, we're not thinking about what it would be like to be 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or any other time in your life. You're so present. Right. We were just present. And that was phenomenal because it allowed us to be very focused and very locked into what it was that we really wanted to do. And we were so connected to one another musically. We came from different worlds. We were the same age, more or less, but we were, um, yeah, but we were from different cultures, different backgrounds, different, you know, all the other details were different. And yet we were, we had such a shared sensibility. And so that helped build this team of ours and this little bubble of ours, um, still not figuring out that this was what we were doing while we were doing it. But think when I said things were happening fast, I was singing at a cafe in London for a while called Cafe Bohème. This is the stuff I remember better than Newark Academy. Um, and I had this, these, these are real details. I had this gig every Wednesday and Friday from three to five, and they hardly paid me any money at all, but they would give us coffee, pass a little bit of money, and we'd sit in the corner and we would just play songs to the people passing by. To this day, I will meet people, even at big concerts, I can be in a big concert hall for 3000 people. I might meet somebody at a signing, literally in Beijing, who says, I used to see you at Cafe Bohème. So they were formative years. And I sat in the corner and I would sing songs with this guitarist and sometimes Jim. And um, somebody came in from a record company who got interested in me and I ended up signing with. Uh, somebody came in a little later who was making a film called Richard III with Ian McKellen and they asked me if I would come and open the film. Um, so. Humphrey Littleton, a, a very well-known trumpeter and raconteur who was on the radio, um, played me on his radio station before I was published, but I had made a demo when I was at Guildhall. So that's what I mean about little things happened to me on the, along the way that ended up being really big things that made my career start to surge even before I had really planned to have a career. That's fascinating. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about sort of your performance. I mean, you've now performed in 50 countries, I guess. And, and that seems to be, uh, you seem to have quite a, an ambition. I mean, obviously now we're, it's a little curtailed by COVID, but uh, you've been, you're pretty active. And, and I guess my question is sort of how did, did the love of performance, was that something that, that you developed over these years? Um, and, and, you know, do you continue to, I mean, you have the same sort of love for that type of experience as a musician? 
you're asking this question in a really interesting period because we've been off in about two weeks, we'll have been off for one year. Yeah. Our last tour date was March the 2nd and we came home from that tour and you know, lockdown happened and we're still here. So it's made us reflect on things. And I'd love to talk about this because I think everybody listening in, I'm sure it's the same for you. This year has brought us an experience that we couldn't have possibly imagined. All those kind of hypothetical questions you might've asked yourself, we're now living right. and it's gonna change our direction, a lot of us. Uh, if we're lucky enough, because a lot of people are really suffering through this, but for those of us who are just hanging in there and hanging out and waiting, it's still kind of changing your point of view. But in answer to your question, and going back earlier, this is fun to talk about because I think this does have something very much to do with my Newark Academy years. Um, my dad really wanted me to play tennis. And I played tennis at Newark Academy. And, you know, as a good tennis player, physically. Um, I was one year, I guess in my senior year, I was New Jersey state champion on the, on the team in my, whatever my singles position was. So I was a good little player, but I did not have the head for it. I am not, I'm not an athlete in the head. I'm not competitive. Okay. I'm just not. And so, you know, I had the strokes and I did not have the head and I would play kids and I would get psyched out and I would, you know, just, it was rough. So my dad was driving me to tournaments on the weekends and because I was doing well, you know, he was excited and he would put me on this trajectory. You know, it was, those were tough years. He and I, you know, we're good friends now, my dad and I, but we had our tussles in those days because he really wanted me to play. And the problem was I was winning. So right. he was pushing me to play. And I was going, but this is not my head. You know, you have to have the personality for your vocation as well. So the reason that comes into the story as profoundly as it does is because when I got my first gig, I'm not talking about the Cafe Bohem gigs where I was sitting in a corner in a stool. When I got my first gig where it was, my name was on the front and I had center stage with a light. You know, I'm, I'm even feeling it now. This is the stuff I really remember well. For a few days before, I don't know how many days, I can't tell you. You know, sometimes things seem larger than they really were. Did I miss sleep for a night, three nights, seven nights? I don't know. The point is I was scared. I was terrified because I had this big show and I didn't feel ready. So I'm sleepless and I'm scared and I'm living on all this adrenaline and I get my show. It's at a place called Pete's on the Park in Knightsbridge in London. And uh, it was a big venue. Lots of people came through there. If you looked it up, there are a lot, you know, it was a famous place where people played. And I thought, what am I doing here? But I get up on stage after this, the, the guy calls me up on the mic. And I would say for the first three songs, I was, my voice was probably this big and I was terrified. And then by somewhere in song number three, I was going, this is great. This is good. This feels right. It was diving into some super cold water and suddenly you realize that, wait, your body temperature just acclimatizes and you're fine. The reason to go back to the tennis, it was so important to me was the tennis taught me that that was not the right fit. And this was mm. because nobody was on the other side of the court to compete with me. Everybody who was in that room 
paid a ticket because they wanted to hear this girl sing. And we were all on the same side. And suddenly I had this stage to say, you know, I wasn't like this big look at me kind of star thing. Even when I was at Nork Academy doing all those shows and I would get some, you know, main parts. I was never really that star who stood on the stage going, look at me, look at me. I loved the music and I wanted to share the music. And I'll tell you one detail that I do remember from Nork Academy. At Nork Academy, I had this little group of, of friends, little group of girlfriends, you know, and we would hang out together. And they would often ask me to sing to them. I was known as a singer, but in a very kind of lulling lullaby way. Mm-hmm. What I remember is somebody would say, you know, little girls, you stick together. You're very physical. You know, it's a very, um, it's a very loving and tender time in your life. I mean, you know, hopefully all times are, but you know, little girls kind of grouping together, we'd sit close together and, and huddle. And one of the little kids would say, you know, could you sing to me? And I would sing in her ear. I mean, I was literally whispering singing to this person. It was very human contact. And that made so much sense to me. So I was kind of known for doing that. So to go back to when I was on stage at Pete's on the Park for the first time, this thing of saying, I know this gorgeous song. It takes me on such a ride. I will transport you, come with me. All those people who I told you bought the ticket to come in. They weren't on the other side of the net. There was nothing competitive about it. Nobody was over there like this going, you know, and it just felt right. And so that too was very long-winded. I'm sorry about that, but it's a, a winding way to say that to this day, the reason that I love performing so much, and it is demanding and it is too demanding and, and it's hard on the body. And I am, there is a part of this year that I'm enjoying being off because I feel, you know, quite, I'm not exhausted. I'm not in, tears because I've gone from, you know, one continent to another and boom, I got to get on stage. You know, the, the, the tours can be quite harsh on I the bottom. Imagine. Yeah. But what calls you is that this, especially in this crazy, disparate, aggressive, mixed up world with a lot of misplaced and understanding and, and mis. There's a lot of misunderstanding between people, between countries, between territories, between in politics, you name it. That's not my realm. I am, I get to live in the realm of, you know, music making no matter where I go in the world. And in fact, it has been, we've been in 55 countries. I don't know these people. And yet we meet on such common ground. And to be a person who gets to connect people, they come into this theater and suddenly you are one common mind and one common mood and you go on this journey together. That is the most beautiful part of my life and my work Mm -hmm. to connect with other human beings and to recognize and to share how human we really are. And it's all just all these misunderstandings that we have got to clear the decks and just, you know, meet. Well, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was going to say, I, I think that, you know, having listened to some of your, uh, most of your albums, and I've never seen you in, live, but but I do think that there's a, an intimacy and a kind of way that you speak to, um, you know, to your, to your listeners. And I imagine it's even more 
pronounced when you're in person, but you certainly even feel it. I, I, I mentioned that it had snowed here recently. And the first day after a 12 inch snow, I, I, um, the, the, the roads were finally cleared. So I went for a walk and I put on my AirPods and I had your music on. And I had the real sense of a, a, a sort of an intimate conversation. I mean, you were doing all the singing, but it was, it was, I was part of that. And so when you say that you take people along with you on your trip and, or your love story, or your, you know, your tale of visiting Japan, I mean, all, all those things are very much, I think, part of what's unique about your, your voice and your, your, the, the type of music that you make. So it seems consistent with, with what you describe, you know, as well. Um, Thank you. This is why it's fun to talk about Nurk Academy because you see, even though I don't have that many details, it's very much connected to those days. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, we 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 still, I mean, I, I mentioned that I lived in France. We we do the IB. We try to we think of ourselves as a more internationally minded school. And obviously, in the last few years, you know, um, when we're we've been making America great again, internationalism has sort of been put to the side, but. Not with us, and I and I think we have you know a lot of kids from many different backgrounds and and a real appreciation for that. And um, so I, I actually love that aspect of your of your of you as well. Um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your languages because it's it's true that you've I mean you mentioned you, you, your grandfather kind of introduced you to French. Um, you also know German. You did Latin, Portuguese. I mean. And and you sing in, in these other languages too, which is quite remarkable, really, at, at this day and age. Um, how you know how does that? How do you think that affects the kind of performer you are? I think the fact that you speak and know different languages also makes you really more a citizen of the world than somebody who's kind of accessible. You know, even if it's not their language, they know that you're. I mean, you have the experience of knowing other cultures, knowing other languages, having conversed with people in their languages. I think that that, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm imagining an answer, but I think that that kind of enhances your, your humanity and your capacity to connect with people. Well, thanks, yes. I think that has, that is, that is the foundation of the whole thing. Um, you know, when I started going to Middlebury, one of the things that I loved, there's so much to say here, one of the things I loved about Middlebury was this is a school that started its summer language program because the first language was German. And it started after the First World War. And their philosophy behind the start of this school was if we understood one another better, we would fight less. There would be fewer wars. Now, that's a gorgeous thought. It doesn't always work. But I loved learning that from them. And I've carried that with me my whole life. So at Middlebury, I studied um, French, German, Italian, and Portuguese. Um, and I want to tell you a little bit about the Portuguese because um, people think that I studied Portuguese because I became a musician and I work so often in Brazil with Brazilian musicians. And so, you know, I would want to speak Portuguese, but actually it started way earlier than that. And I think this is really important to my story. And I want, I want people to know why, because I want people to know that um, um, why I started stu studying something as an adult, a young adult, but still an adult, and that it's never over. If you want to keep studying and find something, then go forth and do it. Um, but I think that those 
just to go back to the really important part of this and my music, my desire to communicate with people. You know, we would go abroad and I was an Italian student at Sarah Lawrence. And so I would just sit wherever we were sitting and just listen. And I enjoyed listening to people speak because I was listening to just the poetry of the language itself, their inflections, the way they would tell a story, the way they would deliver a joke, um, their use of metaphor, our use of metaphor, their use of puns and ours. You know, it's so much fun to see how people express themselves and what we've borrowed from one another in different countries, um, what translates, what doesn't translate. But in, in the end, it's because human beings, no matter where you go in the world, are exactly the same. And this is why it's such a tragedy that we can't meet because we have the same, you know, some people are horrible and evil and you know, that does exist too, but there's so much goodness out there and, and people for the most part, they're in their families or with their friends and they have the same worries and they have the same concerns and they have the same hopes and they have the same dreams. I mean, we are just the same. And it doesn't matter what country you come from or what line you come from or what, you know, the, the pigmentation is in your skin tone. I mean, just everything is so wacky as to how we've decided to divide ourselves because human beings in the heart are the same. And again, that is one of the things that I love about my work and going from country to country and continent to continent, because I learned early on, I already had this instinct that we were all the same, but I, we're only, we're only different because we've decided to chop ourselves into categories. Human nature is the same. And it also doesn't matter the generation, you know, if you read literature from, I don't care how many hundreds of years ago, we are still on the same path as human beings and asking the same questions about our lives. And so in, in my world of music, I get to encounter this every single day. And I think I gravitate towards a music that is very intimate and is for the most part universal. You know, working with Jim, my husband who writes the music and Ishiguro, the lyricist, right. uh, the writer, um, they write me and the songs that I pick from the American songbook or the Brazilian songbook or the French songbook so often have this real universal story to tell. It doesn't matter what the details are. It doesn't matter if you're living in the ice hotel or you're living there or you're doing this or you're doing that. All the tales can be taken on. You and I can listen to the same song and be, or read the same book or listen to the same movie and take from it what, what knocks on our door, right? right? Because they're all universal. And that is, you know, I have to say it a second time, that is the best part about my job. Do, and, you know, being on the road, doing this with my best friend is pretty good too. That's pretty, that's a, that's a great, a great uh, stroke of good fortune. And uh, that, well, you make your own, but, but that's, that's worked out well. I, I actually did want to ask you a bit about your creative process. And when you, you know, how do you do you set out to do a new album or a new song or does it does it come to you or what are some of the thoughts that you would have on that part of your work? Well, some things just fall into place um, because of good timing. And again, I'm gonna go back. I have to talk about the Brazilians in a minute because that's a really important part of the story and how that happened. Um, some things, you don't know who you're gonna meet around a corner that's going to change your life or make you 
do something that you wouldn't have otherwise done, which has happened to me thanks to the friends I've met along the way. And so they've inspired projects like Roberto Menescal and Marcus Valle and Danilo Caimi and um, the, the, the people I've just been lucky enough to meet. Other things are things, <laughs> you know, my iPhone is pretty much always with me and I'm most of the time in notes. I'm constantly writing notes. And so I have these long list of ideas for songs or projects and they will happen anywhere and everywhere. Jim and I live here in the Rocky Mountains and when we're off tour, this happens when we're on tour too, but often when we're on off, off tour, we're hiking or walking and we will have these, you know, quote unquote meetings. I'm not gonna call them business meetings because they're not business meetings, but they are musical meetings. And one of us will say, you know, what about that song? Or what if we did this? And you know, it's the, the, the exchange is constant. So I take it the iPhone and I write the idea because we won't remember otherwise. And, you know, then I put them together and I organize them and I have all these spreadsheets. And so I, I have these short-term projects and long-term projects going all the time. One I'll bring up that just happened now because we just released something in the last week or so um, was Lovely Day, the Bill Withers song. Yes. And that came out kind of out of nowhere and yet not. I was asked to do a television commercial probably about 10 years ago. And uh, this particular company asked me to sing a couple of sample songs for them in the studio. And I did, and one of them was Lovely Day. And they ended up taking a song that I had already recorded and used it on the commercial, and that was Hushabye Mountain from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. They wanted a lullaby, uh, it was a, a mattress commercial, and they wanted something lulling and lullabyish. And so they ended up going with something I'd already recorded. But for 10 years, I was carrying around this idea of, God, I love the Bill Withers, you know, we should do something with that one day. But, you know, we're always on tour and sometimes things just are stay on the, in my iPhone, there on a list. But because of the pandemic and people are feeling pretty isolated and, you know, just it's been a year of alienation and a year of loneliness and a year of worry. And people write to me on social media all the time. I mean, the, the interaction with people has been phenomenal because people want to stay connected. And so they're there on Facebook or Instagram or Patreon and they will write me their requests. And I had some of the same requests over and over and over again. And they were either, the most requested song was I Wish I Could Go Traveling Again, which I've just re-recorded and that's going to come out on Friday, um, which is the Tomlinson Ishiguro song. And everybody wanted to hear that because they're dying to get out there again. And the other ones were all lullabies. Mm -hmm. Everybody wanted me to sing them a lullaby. And I loved that. Because again, it just kept us engaged and connected and they wanted to hear that intimate voice for somebody to kind of whisper in their ear, like the, my little girlfriends that I'm talking about back at school, you know, just right. to know that everything's gonna be okay. Everything's gonna be all right. So all of a sudden from 2010 to 2020 with this nut of an idea in the back of my mind and on an iPhone, Jim and I said, you know what? Let's do this right now. And because we're home, we could do it. And we, we have our studio here. We didn't have the whole band. We just made it a very pared down version. But what we did was we made this official video where we asked some fans from around the country, from around the world, excuse me, people from 36 different countries joined us in a lip sync to I make this that. video. I was wondering where those people came from. <laughs> They're from everywhere. There's a list at the end. There's a little, okay. there's the little credits at the end. 
that Jim wrote up that are just gorgeous to say thank you to all these people. And they're from everywhere. So it does two things because you've got us connected to the world, which is so fundamental to what we do. But also the messages that I got back from people were so beautiful because we asked a bunch of fans to come and be part of it. And at first some people said no, because they were really down, they were really depressed. And one woman from Italy said, you know what, I just, I'm gonna be honest with you, I really wanna do this, but you know, I just can't get up right now. You know, she was just so low. And she forced herself to do it. And afterwards she said, oh my God, that made me feel so much better. Rui Zink, my, one of my Portuguese professors is in the video. Mm-hmm. And uh, he didn't say that he was really down to begin with, but he said, God, that was just such a lift. All these people kept writing me and said, what a lift it was to just, it's like the muscles. If you make yourself smile when you're not in the mood, you right. can kind of convince your brain that you're okay. You know, and these people were just going lovely day, lovely day, yeah. lovely day. And suddenly it was this lovely day. And then they saw themselves, you know, everybody was just on this video and everybody, me too, it was so infectious. I mean, that's why I wanted to do it because I was feeling down too, you know? Yeah. This, is not, this has been not some easy ride for anybody, you know, just spiritually, you know, it's hard you're in the lockdown and, and the worry about what's going to happen and when's it going to end and how many more people are going to die and how long is this going to last? I mean, we're all left with these unknowns still. So to get up and be together with people and to be, you know, not physically connected, but as if you're physically connected, Right. There's a little girl from Denmark in there. I mean, just all these gorgeous people. One of my teachers from um, Angola is in there. Uh, I don't, uh, there, uh, there are about three or four people I actually know. And then everybody else is just a fan who I don't know personally, but I might've met them at a signing. Um, it was just such an experience of unity it was just beautiful. And so that's why I made that. So in answer to your question, sorry, I know my questions are so long-winded, uh, my answers, but some things are long-term plans and some things just kind of happen. And I think that one of the things that's happened to me in my life along the way, because I met Jim the way I met him and because I ended up in England and Germany and on this career the way I did, it has always left me with a really good, healthy, optimistic outlook that you have no idea who you're going to meet tomorrow or the day after who could just change your whole life. Right. Yeah. And I think that leaves me very open musically that some things are planned and some things I just kind of, you know, my taxi light is just on. Um, Yeah. That's a great attitude. Um, And, and, you know, as you, as you're talking, it, it makes me think too, that your, that your sound is, it's a kind of an interesting combination because there's definitely sort of happiness and an optimism that's very front and center, but there's also sort of a, sometimes an elegiac quality and, you know, and and that's in the background as well. I mean, it's sort of an interesting combination. It's there. I mean, I'm smiling and I am okay. (laughs) And I do feel a lot of optimism, but I think one of the things that's a really important ingredient is that um, I'm also a really sad person. I mean, I had a sad path here too. I didn't have the easiest uh, childhood. You know, my parents broke up when I was young and that was painful. 
and I experienced a lot of, it was quite painful. Um, and it's probably what made me get on the plane that day after college. I was not necessarily just running to, I was also running away from. So there has been a lot of pain that I think it's part of life. Nobody yeah. said, you know, you're not born and I think it's important for us, or at least for me, the point isn't to try and be happy because who said life is about being happy? Life is just about being alive, right? right? And then you do with it what you can. And so I accept my sadness um, in a way that I think is, that is okay, that is positive, ironically, because there's an acceptance. And by the way, this is why I feel so wonderfully connected to the music that I choose. And this happens in all countries. You find that pain, pain, joy balance in, I hear it in music that people send to me because I go to Turkey a lot in Turkey, down in South America, all over the world you find it. Because again, the human condition is the same, right? Yeah. But one of the things that I love about singing the Brazilian music is because they, they describe that so beautifully. You know, Vinicius de Moraes, the great poet who wrote with Jobim, who was the ambassador to Italy, who was just, he's just this incredible human being with so much charisma. Everybody loved Vinicius de Moraes. And, um, you know, he, he wrote these songs about the balance of you cannot have the joy in your life. You simply cannot without experiencing, you've, you've got to have a, a, a go to the, 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 the drop of rain, mm -hmm. it, the drop of sadness. Right. And that's what makes it. So yes, I do project that optimism, but I think that people, anybody who comes to the shows is already, or listens to the music, you don't have to know it. You don't have to know my story to know it. It's just something you feel. Right. And uh, I am aware of how harsh life is. And I think that's really important because my job is not only to sing to people, but it's to sing for them and to feel, a, you know, experience this. It's a very empathetic. Right. Absolutely. Experience. We it's are all very authentic, right? Because people, you know, people have those same, you know, types of challenges in their own lives, right? Their loss or their difficulties. And, and um, yeah, and, and I think, you know, the example of the lovely day, I mean, the, the video, it was very uplifting to watch, to listen to that and to see all those faces, you know, people sort of making it true. And yet we all know it's a pandemic. So, you know, it's a struggle, but it's, there's, as you say, you can find the happiness and the 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 rosier way of looking at things um, and you do a great job with that well i guess i have one sort of final question which you've uh and that's whether the pandemic and the current pause if you will from your normal routine and some of the projects that you've been doing like the lovely day are those likely to spawn changes and and how you kind of go forward uh, or do you expect to resume you know, a, a touring schedule like you've had or, and I guess more broadly, what are some of your projets, you know, for the future? So I don't want to go back to the pace. I want to go back to exactly what I was doing, but change the pace. Because, um, listen, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a little spooked by the world right now. And to travel for a living feels a bit weird. 
It's not like I'm just driving from here down to the office and I've got my mask on and I'm safe and contained. You know, I'm, I'm happy not to get on the plane just, well, I haven't even been vaccinated yet. And I don't know how it is for, for you guys um, in your state here, they're talking about for our age group, um, maybe this will change, but they're talking about June for us. Hopefully that will change, but even if it does, you know, I'd like to see the world, um, you know, turn itself around where I go out there because I'm not really ready to put myself at risk, my band at risk and the people who come to see us at risk, you know, so it's gotta be pretty darn safe. It's funny because I don't go through life scared of the world at all. I mean, I fling myself around the world all the time. And there are places where I've gone where people have said, doesn't that place sort of scare you? And I've never been terribly scared. I mean, I think that we're pretty well taken care of out of there. They'll say, hey, you know, don't walk down that street. Yeah. But otherwise we're fine. We'll go everywhere. We're not going into war zones, but we are, you know, we're just not scared of the world. But right now I am spooked. Uh, it's not a healthy place and I would like to see it turn around. Well, so now let's talk about the long term. Once it does turn around, uh, and of course it will, we have plans to go out on tour at the end of this year. We'll see if that gets canceled or not. They're rebooking us for 2022 and 23 and 24 because we get booked long in advance and I'm fine to take those shows, but the pace has to change because this pace does suit us. Well, <laughs> a couple of things have happened in my private life that are, are very nice. To my left, I just have this garden in my kitchen of microgreens and sprouts and vegetables that are growing in water gardens. So mm-hmm. I have, I'm growing food in my house and I've never done that before. Jim and I are just loving that. We've bought all these house plants and we're taking care of them and they're everywhere and we're nurturing them and they love that we're here. And that's really fun. And we didn't, we used to have just this, you know, these little plants because the paper would come in and take care of the house. We couldn't inundate them with, you know, house plant watering work right so we have all these bird feeders and we have all this wildlife around us that we we always have that but we're just enjoying the mother nature um aspect of where we live i mean you can see i'm quite excited about it and i have this home life and this routine and we work well here you know jim and i are used to being off the road anyway so we're good without structure because we structure ourselves we wake up we have breakfast we discuss what we're going to do he goes to his studio i go to my music room we work we meet up for lunch we discuss what we're going to do with the afternoon we'll record you know we're very productive in our music um obviously we're gonna have to go out earn a living um you know and also do what it is that is our calling. Those things are important and they will happen again. But while we're here, we can still, there's not a moment of emptiness or tedium. We can do this forever because we love each other's company and we have our work and we have mother nature. So we kind of have everything. My friends who I talk to who are musicians or writers or, or, or artists who are home, they're kind of okay in the head through this because right. there means their their life is kind of secluded anyway so the projects will continue we're about to release we want to keep releasing while we're out here um and uh we can i'm making a record with my longtime pianist art hirahara who people who are listening in who've seen us let's say in new york or new jersey or in, anywhere really in the world will have seen me with art we've been working together a long time and we We've talked about making a duet record because we've really good chemistry, the three of us, Jim's producing it. We've been talking about this project for a long time, but always things got in the way. And because we're 
home, he's in New York, I'm here, and we can record a duet record apart. The quintet record is more challenging. We did some Christmas tunes, but it's hard to make a whole record without us being together. We want to be together. But he's recording at home. I'm recording here. Sometimes I sing first and he plays to my singing. Sometimes he plays first and I put my singing down. The point is, as of Friday, we're releasing our first track. And then every three weeks for the next few weeks, we're going to release these digital tracks, keep people engaged, keep the music coming out, and then we'll make a record, a physical copy of it once we decide to tour. So we've got all these great projects going. We've got an album that was supposed to come out last year, Summer Me, Winter Me, that we deferred because there was no tour. We will hopefully put that out in the autumn if we go out. If not, we will push it into next year. So the projects continue. Home life is thriving. And um, we will, one, need, and two, want to get out of here eventually. But for the moment, we're patient. But yeah, the pandemic has changed a lot for a lot of people. We're connected to home and we didn't have this before we didn't have this for years decades yeah. I mean, and this this is really also very pleasant so we need more we just need to change the balance yeah that's great well thank you so much uh, stacy for um for taking the time and uh, you know i hope that i look forward to having the opportunity to, to meet you at some point perhaps next time you're in the new york area maybe it'll be in 20 21 or 2022, I'll definitely come. I know there was a group of Newark Academy folks that came, I think, two years ago when you were there. Uh, yeah. I wasn't able to go that night, but uh, I'll definitely try. And well, that would be great. I mean, we're usually there, fingers crossed. We just had a big telethon for Birdland because they were on the brink. Big hurting, yeah. Um, and so they're hanging in for a little while longer, but this went on way longer than we were expecting. And they had furloughed all of their staff because they wanted right. to keep their staff. So, you know, crazy um but we're usually there twice a year we do run into newark academy people there over the years year in year out people will come from newark academy and sarah lawrence and that's really fun because you know as i said to start this interview i'm not necessarily connected to these people but folks will come in and go you know we went to high school together and sure. there's this face of this little person all grown up that i recognize and i love that and it's been really fun to talk to you because i'm talking to you in a way you know, it's funny, you started this interview by saying, I'm not, I don't usually ask, ask these questions. And yet I've said lots of things that I don't normally say in interview. I almost feel like I'm talking to these people who are at the school. I don't know why this was in the back of my head, but to let them know, you know, here I am grown up who started out at Newark Academy and, you know, I had this rocky start. And yet I think of Newark Academy in this really positive way um, that it put me on a, a great path, even though I didn't always felt like, I didn't always feel like I, I didn't always feel like I belonged right. and I didn't always feel good and right. And yet that is something that most children will feel and often adults feel and you just stay persistent and you find your path and your way. And um, so I think back on it really very fondly. So it's okay. nice to talk to you and, and sort of reminisce a little bit well i really enjoyed the conversation and, and i, I want to again thank you for for all your beautiful art and uh you know sort of the way that you connect connect to people and connect people to each other and, and it's it's really um it's a beautiful thing so you're 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 we're very proud to count you among our graduates and maybe one day we'll see you back on campus i'd love that that would be wonderful thank you very much thank you for listening to na voices if you have a story that you'd like to share, please email us at alumni at newarka.edu.